And Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, as you know, is the greatest film ever produced. Um, featuring, um, at the beginning, the Arab Azim, who escaped with Robin from prison in Jerusalem. Um, and he's made this kind of promise to protect Robin, so they come back together. And Robin and he have this conversation, Robin asking why he was in prison. And Azim says, well, it was because of a woman, which Robin thinks is ridiculous, and he scoffs at it. And then Robin says, was she worth it? And Azim says, worth dying for. Towards the end of the film, Robin is about to launch recklessly into a, a pretty hopeless um, venture to save Marion. And Azim asks him the question, is she worth it? To which he says, worth dying for. Worth dying for. What is worth the fight? What's worth the all-out risk? Now, you could ask Twitter that question. Uh, you could ask Twitter, what is your hill to die on? And you get some, some wonderful answers like these two. Uh, Ruben says, when someone lands on a property in Monopoly and they don't buy it, it goes to auction for any player to buy. It is in the rules. Isn't it, Phil? It is. That's his hill to die on. Or Amal al-Motar, who says, hummus is made of chickpeas. It is literally the Arabic for chickpeas. There is no such thing as white bean chickpea. For the love of all that's wonderful, stop calling it any random spread. Hummus. If you ask Twitter, what is your hill to die on, you will get total nonsense. I wonder if you ask Christians, what is it that's worth fighting for? What we would say? Uh, we used to sing a song in church that said, I want to give my life for something that will last forever. Remember that? Oh, I delight, I delight. I delight to do your will. I want to give my life for something that will last forever. That still kind of grabs me a little bit, that song. And there's something in me that kind of provokes this yearning to be completely invested in something that actually matters. Well, Acts 15 is something that actually matters. Uh, Luke puts Acts 15 pretty much in the middle of his book. It comes at the end of um, Paul's first missionary journey, at the start of his second. And the significance is humongous. Uh, there's an awful lot in this chapter. It's a long chapter. Um, we can't engage with all of it, so I'm going to ask four questions. What's the matter? How's the matter sorted? What's really the matter? Why does it matter? <laughs> okay. So we're going to do. What is the matter? What is the matter? Uh, the matter is produced by the success of Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Uh, we saw, beginning of Acts, Jesus is risen. He ascends back to the Father uh, from the place of power, ready to pour out his spirit so he can send out the church to the end of the earth, proclaiming Christ. And Acts has plotted that mission. Uh, the gospel is going out. Jesus is doing what he said. He's building his church. And now it includes a great number of Gentiles. And that influx of non-Jewish background believers is hard for the Jewish believers to grapple with. At verse 1, um, Luke really gives a kind of laser-focused summary of the issue to be dealt with. It happens in Antioch, the first established Gentile church. People go there from Judea and they teach, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. The matter is the matter of what it means to be saved. How's it sorted? How is the matter sorted? Uh, Luke doesn't hold back what he thinks about this. He says in verse 1, this teaching was given to the believers, literally the brothers. Uh, Luke is identifying the object of this teaching as those who he considers to be already in the family of God. They are already saved. He does not consider circumcision, their lack of circumcision, to exclude them from salvation. Uh, but the matter gets sorted out with with wrangling, intense and long debating. 
Starts off in Antioch, you see that, verse 2. Paul and Barnabas are brought into sharp dispute and debate. And the church in Antioch thinks it's so important that they send a delegation to Jerusalem. They travel for 250 miles to carry on the argument. And in Jerusalem they get a welcome and then the matter is taken up in verse 5. The believers who belong to the party of some of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. It's the same teaching as verse 1. Uh, the must is the necessity, the necessity for salvation. If the Gentiles are to be saved, they must undertake circumcision and keep the law. The argument gets heated. Now, the whole church hear about it, but it's the apostles and elders who meet to consider the question and after much discussion. Um, now Luke doesn't give us all the details of that much discussion. Uh, we just get the kind of a summary of the summaries at the end. Peter kicks off the conclusion in verse 7. He refers back to what happened in Acts 10 when he had that sheep with all the animals in and his vision coming down from heaven, the Lord showing uh, that nothing is to be called unclean as the Lord sent him out to the Cornelius, the Gentile. And Peter says when he was with the household of Cornelius, with these Gentiles, preaching about Jesus, the Holy Spirit was poured out. Verse 8. God showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. And then it's Paul and Barnabas' turn. They, they say, actually, what happened with Peter? Well, we've seen the same thing as we've travelled around to these Gentile cities. And then James gets up and gives the summation. He, he adds to Peter's testimony that, that this is what the Old Testament prophets um, told us about. We are to expect it when we look into the Old Testament, giving Amos as an example. And his conclusion in verse 19 we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. His conclusion is, verse 1 and 5 are wrong. The Gentiles do not need to be circumcised or obey the law of Moses to be saved. And he adds, all they need is to abstain from food polluted by idols, sexual immorality, the meat of strangled animals and blood. They write down the summary, they send it out. The Gentile churches receive it gladly. And verse 35, the work of the word of God goes on. That's how it's sorted. What is going on here? What is really the matter? What's really the matter? Well, the issue that provokes this Jerusalem council is a question of salvation. What is needed to be saved? But that begs the question, of course, doesn't it? What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to be saved? Well, let's look, shall we? We probably have ideas about that. I hope we have some ideas about that. Um, but let's see what Acts 15 says. What is being saved in Acts 15? This is my summary. Very catchy. God's work of personal regeneration to create a new creation, spirit-filled people who belong to him based on the gracious work of Christ through the hearing and believing of the gospel. What? <laughs> Sue Jane's face sums it up. That's right. It's perfect. What is going on there? Let's work through it. God's work. God's work. Barnabas and Paul in verse 4, they, they kick off. They say, this is about what God has done. It's what God is doing. And then Peter speaks up in verse 7. It's what God has done. God made a choice. James then picks it up in verse 14. God has done it. God intervened. The driving power behind all of this is what God has done. They're trying to see what has God done. That's what they're looking for. What has God done? Personal regeneration. Uh, Peter tells his, his testimony about what God did with Cornelius and his household, and he focuses on their hearts. Verse 8, God who knows the hearts 
verse 9, God purified their hearts. Peter says he, he, he knows this has happened, that this heart work has happened because the Holy Spirit was given. And this idea, these ideas of cleansing and hearts and, and spirit, those, those ideas take us back really to Ezekiel chapter 36. Worth just reading a few verses from there. Ezekiel 36. The Lord says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness. That's what Peter saw in the household of Cornelius. God gave his spirit to cleanse their hearts, to give them such a cleansing that their hearts are purified, they're renewed, so that they might belong to him. Now really, that's why circumcision isn't needed anymore. Circumcision doesn't apply because circumcision itself was a, was a sign toward the need for heart change, heart circumcision. Uh, it was a, a promise that, that God would give his spirit to change hearts. Hearts that needed changing. Hearts that were rotten and hardened Full of sin. They look quite like my heart. Probably like yours. Um, hearts that just belch out impurity. Now, the Lord doesn't say sort it out. Now, he knows we can't do that. But the Lord cleanses hearts by giving the spirit. Purified their hearts. Personal regeneration. To create a new creation spirit filled people who belong to him. What's God's goal in salvation? What's he trying to achieve? Look at verse 14. Uh, James is, is summarising things. He, he says, God first intervened. He's saying God turned up personally. God showed up. He arrived in a situation to bring about his purpose. God intervened for what? To choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. That's what God's doing. Pouring out his spirit to create a people who belong to him. People for his name. A people who exist for the praise of his glory. God is pouring out his spirit and it's the beginning of a whole new world, a new creation. And this spirit-filled community is the people who are to last forever. A people whose home is in the world to come, that place of, of joy and splendour and glory. And we could say much more about that, but time does not permit us. But it all comes based on the gracious work of Christ. I think it's verse 11 where Peter most directly opposes the teaching in verse 1. Verse 1, you must be circumcised to be saved. Your salvation, at least in part, must be conditioned to your obedience to circumcision. And Peter says, no, no, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. It's not conditioned on your obedience. The only condition is the grace of Jesus. Otherwise, grace is not grace. The saving work is merited on the gift of Christ. Yeah, and then James quotes from the prophet Amos, verses 16 to 18. Speaks about David's tent and ruins being rebuilt and restored. And harking back to those ancient promises to David. David promised one of his descendants would reign on his throne forever. The, the promise that the prophets picked up and repeated and expanded, imagining this universal and eternal dominion. And the psalmist, he spoke about how David's son would be exalted to the right hand of God and would rule forever. And we've seen it narrated through Acts as we've gone through. 
the Lord Jesus Christ risen, ascended to the place of power, Jesus Christ in heaven, with his dominion extending to the ends of the earth. That's what Amos foresaw, the, the restoration of David's place. And then the reason, verse 17, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord. The Spirit of God, the, the life-giving Spirit is creating the new creation, people of God, because the life-giving Spirit, as we've seen already, is the connection, the connection that we have to the risen Christ, the way that Christ is connected to his people on earth. The Spirit is that channel of, of resurrection life. The Spirit is the one who, who brings all the, the blessings of the death-defeating, sin-sacrificing, life-living Saviour, bringing all the blessings into the heart of the believer based on the gracious work of Christ. Now, Paul, Peter, James, they all underline that God's purpose and plan has always been to include the Gentiles and his people. It's a salvation for all who will believe. And it comes through the hearing and believing of the gospel. Received by faith. Now James says, God intervenes to choose a people. This is summarising what Simon says. Simeon has told us how God first intervened to choose a people. God has shown up in the lives of these individuals, these people personally encountered the living God. That was their saving moment. But how did that, how did that happen? How did these people in Cornelius' house encounter the living God? What was the means of them doing that? What was the means of God visiting them, reaching in and taking hold of them? Well, Peter's described the same thing in verse 7, and from a very different perspective. He says, the Gentiles should hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. The way that God saves people is through the message of the gospel being heard and received by faith. There we go. What do you make of all that? I wonder... Being saved. I wonder if often our tendency when we think about salvation is we make it small or we just focus on one part. But, but, but salvation is huge. It's great. Salvation is God's work, not our work. It's, it, it's not about me. It's about us together as a people. And it's through the simple means of hearing and faith, but it's staggering in its scope. Salvation, God's work of personal regeneration to create a new creation, spirit-filled people who belong to him, based on the gracious work of Christ through the hearing and believing of the gospel. Acts 15 shows why it is essential that we hold on to the fact that this gospel, this salvation, is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And it's the foundation of the church, and the church must not move from it. And I imagine we all can kind of nod our heads, maybe. We, we, we think it's important. Salvation is important. We must hold on to it. Faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. We love these things. And, and it's okay in Acts 15. It's all okay. All okay, isn't it? Until... James starts talking about strangled animals, verse 20 and verse 29. And he gets, I think, I know salvation is important. I know we've got to protect the gospel. It's so important that we hold on to the gospel and we don't add works into the gospel and we, we have the gospel. And then, and then he talks about this, these, these strange things and we think, well, have we missed something here? And it throws us off a bit, doesn't it? What is it to be saved? Well, why is he talking about this? Verse 20. He says, no, all we need to do is write to them and tell them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. What's going on? What's going on? Well, first of all, these are all things dealt with in the Old Testament law. Um, but, but James puts them in such a way that it's quite hard to locate exactly where he's referring to. There have been different attempts to do that. I don't find many of them too persuasive. Um, secondly, it's been noted often that these 
Um, four things are, connect, are connected with pagan <coughs> temple practices. Now, in those pagan societies where these people are becoming Christians, that the temple would be the centre of the community, the hub of the economy and social life. And so, so people suggest today that these practices are singled out because they would be, make it especially hard for Jewish and Gentile believers to mix together. In effect, James is kind of saying to the Gentile churches, you need to accommodate your Jewish brothers and sisters by not putting up these cultural barriers to fellowship. Some people suggest that. There may be something in that, and we'll come to it in a moment. And we could look at these prohibitions as kind of broad categories. A concern for idolatry, how you relate to God. A concern for sexual immorality, how you relate to other people. A concern for, for life. That's what the strangled things and blood is about in the Old Testament. It's always about to honour life. Life is precious. Every meal is a sacrifice, a, a life given in order to preserve another. It's important to respect life. So, so maybe these instructions are about guarding sanctity, sanctity of life, sanctity of marriage, sanctity of worship. We could categorise them like that. Um, let me try and explain to you what I think is going on. As I do this, there are many much wiser than I who think differently. Uh, so take it with a pinch of salt, um, weigh it up for yourself. But this is, this is what I think. I think there are three bits of data in our passage which, which help me to think about this. First thing is, the main concern I think in this passage is salvation. That, that, that seems to be the main concern. It doesn't seem to me the concern is how Christians get on with each other. The, the false teachers aren't coming in and advocating that there should be a two-tier level of Christianity, um, kind of different levels of it. What they're saying is, if you're not circumcised, they're not saying you're a lesser Christian. If you're not circumcised, you're not a Christian. It's about being saved. And the questions of how Jewish and Gentile believers, they're kind of there, but I don't feel like they're on the surface. I don't think we should jump there in our understanding. Second bit of data from our passage is to think more about the point of circumcision. A circumcision was there to, to illustrate a need and point to a solution. Back in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 10, the redeemed people of God are called to love God um, wholeheartedly in loving obedience. That to live in wholehearted loving obedience to God. How do they do that? Deuteronomy 10, 16, they need to circumcise their hearts. So if you're going to love God with all your heart, you need heart circumcision. And by the end of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 36, the, that instruction becomes a promise. God says, well, it says, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts so that you may love him with all your heart. And you will again obey the Lord and follow his commands. We've seen it in Ezekiel 36, how the Lord promises new hearts. He promises to pour out his spirit. And when the Lord pours out his spirit, what's the result? He says, I will pour my spirit in you. What does a spirit-filled believer do? And move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep all my laws. Now circumcision and any other law obedience was never going to be the basis for salvation it was always intended to be the result of salvation. Salvation is to receive the Holy Spirit, and that means to have hearts that are reconfigured toward obeying the law of God. All the law of God. Now that raises huge questions for us. At this point in salvation history, what does it mean to obey all the law of God? Big questions, which brings me to my third data point. Verse 21. James gives these instructions, and then he explains. Yeah. Write to them, tell them to abstain from these things. Verse 21, for the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. James saying that the, the ongoing instruction from the law of Moses is available everywhere. 
So what I think is this. I think uh, when God saves somebody, he begins a work in them, growing them in obedience to his ways. We call it sanctification. And the ongoing instruction for how believers are to live is sourced in the Old Testament law read through the lens of Christ. So, So I think the Jerusalem Council is saying two things. They're saying, first of all, Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not based on what we do, based all on what Christ has done, and it's open to everyone on that basis, and that salvation has implications for how we live. We are to live as those who are learning to follow God's ways, and that learning to live in obedience is not the basis of salvation, it's about living as the saved. So James highlights to the Gentile, the Gentile believers, a kind of preliminary summary of ethical commands, And he shows in verse 21 that those commands can be unpacked and expanded over time through the regular preaching of the law of Moses. James is kind of starting them out with these instructions and starting them out with these instructions rather than other instructions because these do have an application towards unity between Jewish and Gentile believers. What does that mean for us? What does it mean for us? What's the matter for us? I want to give my life for something that will last forever. What is worth fighting for? Two things from this passage. We must fight for clarity on and the centrality of the gospel. I joked at the start about Twitter responses to questions about what hill to die on. It can so easily, though, can't it, in churches and for Christians be the case that the things that really get us going, the things that really bother us, are equally as unimportant. Churches that split over styles of music. Now, I've sat through bizarre church meetings where people dig their heels in about the choice of the colour of new chairs. I've got a friend who's, who's, who's almost being removed from his church because of an argument about the time of a service. It's madness, isn't it? In Acts 15, this issue arises, the believers fight for it, and they're right to fight for it. Paul and Barnabas travel 250 miles to get it sorted. They talk long, they talk hard, and it matters because this is the matter, it is salvation. And that's essential, and it's huge. And we have to ask ourselves, are we bothering with what is most important, or wasting energy on stuff that doesn't matter? Are we clear on the gospel? Is it central for us? We've got to ask questions like that every day. And the best way to be clear on the gospel, you may have heard the kind of, I think it's a made-up story probably, but it's a good story about um, how, how you train a bank teller to spot fake money. Heard that story? Best way to train a bank teller to spot fake money is not to give them exposure to fake money, but give them massive exposure to the feel of genuine notes. You give them hours and hours of counting genuine money so as soon as anything comes their way that, is out, that feels odd or different, they'll raise the alarm. But that's how we get grounded in the gospel. We need massive exposure to the gospel. So as soon as we hear anything that's different, it raises alarm bells. We fight for clarity by immersing ourselves in the gospel, thinking on it, talking on it, praying on it, singing on it, seeing displayed in the table for us. We must fight. We must fight for clarity on the centrality of the gospel. Secondly, we must fight for rigorous application of the gospel to church unity. Salvation is founded on the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when a church builds on that foundation, the whole atmosphere of the church becomes gracious. I think Acts 15 shows us in a number of lovely ways. It shows the gospel binding people together into a family. 
I already mentioned verse 1 has that family word. Uh, When James writes his letter, he emphasizes this, I think, verse 23. See what he says? The apostles and elders, your brothers. These are your brothers writing to you. To the Gentile believers or the Gentile brothers, it says. It's brothers to brothers. That's who's writing. That's what grace does. It produces family close connections. That's why you've got the investment here. The labor of the church in Jerusalem to get it right is because it's about their brothers. The song goes, the road is long with many a winding turn. He ain't heavy. He's my my brother. There we go. The effort is justified on the basis of being family. And our efforts to help each other, to bear with each other, the sorrows we share. He ain't heavy. My brother, my sister. And there's joy. Verse 3, the sharing of the things of God makes the believers glad. Verse 31, when the letter is received, the believers are glad, they're encouraged. And and again, I think James' letter shows the real heart behind what's going on. In verse 24, James explains, he says, We heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds, literally upsetting your souls. These new believers in Antioch had their assurance of salvation robbed by the false teaching. And the believers in Jerusalem want to settle their souls in the assurance of grace. Those are the things which are the flavour of the gospel in the church community. Family, bearing with each other gladly, sharing in encouragements and, and rejoicing and seeking to bring to one another the confidence that grace produces, caring for the souls of one another. The church should unite like that as a family. And, and that means, in Acts 15, applying that, when believers are at different points on the path of sanctification, that should not be a point of disunity. Now, the Jewish believers have been brought up in a world of knowing what God commands. They knew the Ten Commandments. They're probably trying to live out the Ten Commandments. Then they become Christians, the Spirit indwells them, and they start to have changed hearts. But the Gentile believers, they didn't have that. They were ignorant. They knew very little about the Bible. And then they become Christians, and the Spirit indwells them and starts to change their hearts. These groups are going to clash. Of course they are. They're at different points on the journey. They've got different starting points, different blind spots, different areas to grow in. It's so easy for them to look down on one another and for those differences to be points of disunity. That's why the Jerusalem Council goes back to the gospel because it's the gospel that unites. We can see things similarly, can't we? When someone comes to faith from a a believing family, someone who's been always under the teaching of scripture, that they may well already kind of outwardly look like they're living as a Christian. Maybe there's lots to change, but there's, there's a conformity there. But if someone comes to faith from a completely unchurched background, it looks different. And there's a potential to clash. It's like the story of when, the, when a group of European missionaries met a group of American missionaries. And the Americans looked down on the Europeans because they drank alcohol. The, the Europeans are down on the Americans because they wore makeup. Now, both sides might need a challenge on those things, I don't know. But those points shouldn't be a cause for disunity. We shouldn't expect immediate sanctification. We must, shouldn't make sanctification a measure of salvation. You have to fight for rigorous application of the gospel to church unity. I wonder if we do that. I wonder if our tendency is to get bothered about the wrong things, or maybe not get bothered at all. Have we got something worth fighting for? If we've got the gospel, we do, don't we? If we've got the gospel, the answer is yes, we can give our lives to something that will last forever. We can do that. Or we could settle into lukewarm complacency. We don't want that, do we? Now the Lord knows. Let's pray together. Our Lord in heaven, we praise you that we have a gospel. We have a wonderful salvation wrought 
worked for us through your power, your initiative, your grace, your kindness to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, and its scope is vast. And we praise you that we'll spend eternity exploring more of the depth and wonder of the salvation that you have done for us. Please would you help us to be, to, to be committed to the gospel, to love the gospel, to, to fight together to keep it central to what we are and what we do as a church family, and to seek to keep applying the centrality of the gospel to how we unite together and not letting little things separate us. Lord, please help us. Amen.